Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everybody. It's Nick, and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Today is a special episode in that we are going to go deep into a topic which I know has been hugely popular on previous episodes of Scale Up Your Business, but also whenever I attend events, people come up to me and they ask about this one thing more than anything else, and that is... How do you buy businesses? How do you do acquisitions? You know, buy them, fix them, potentially bolt them together with your current business, and then how do you exit them? Now, I am a massive believer in growth and scale through acquisition because that one plus one equals three can be hugely leveraged and and sort of accelerated by this as a strategy. So I, I say to everybody, you need to have this as part of your repertoire, as part of your education. So today, I'm absolutely delighted to have one of my mentors actually coming on the show, a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Harbour, who is the owner and founder of the Harbour Club. Now, if you haven't heard of the Harbour Club, I suggest you Google search, have a look in the uh, the show notes, I'll put some links, because the Harbour Club is essentially a masterclass, if you like, in buying and selling businesses. It is, you know, you go there for two or three days and you are immersed in all the tactics and strategies. Not so much about, you know, just what I call blanket acquisitions. You know, what the Harbour Club does is it gets you into how do you buy businesses for literally no of your own capital and no risk of putting your own money into a deal. So I know just by saying that I've got your attention. (laughs) It's huge. So today we're going to get into that, all of these things, all of this stuff with Jeremy himself. And what we cover is not so much about how do you go and source these deals, what do you need to look at, all of the detail within that, you know, you can find in the Harbour Club, there's a lot of free resources actually out there that can share, you know, give you some more information on this. But what we get into today is the psychology behind it, some of Jeremy's own personal experiences with doing, I forget the number, but it's something like 50 deals that he's done personally, might be more now, and certainly he's advised on over 200 deals. Much of his early career was simply about buying businesses, fixing them, accelerating the growth of them, and then selling them, creating lots of capital events. A lot of his wealth creation has come from that strategy. And these days, he's got a much bigger vision, which is around the democratization of wealth through entrepreneurship and seeing how the balance of investment can shift from what has been sort of big bets on bigger businesses to sort of the global, global sorry, small business economy. So I don't want to go into too much more of the detail. I think you get the sense of what we're going to get into today. Heaps and heaps of value in this in this episode. Take a pen and paper, write down your own thoughts in context to where you are in your business. And I suggest that you certainly, if you want to go down this pathway, get in touch with me, get in touch with Jeremy, because as I said, it is such a crucial part of learning how to grow and scale. So there we are. Absolutely delighted, privileged grateful to have Jeremy Harbour on Scale Up Your Business. So without further ado, welcome Jeremy. So everyone, it's Nick here and welcome to another episode of the Scale Up Your Business podcast. 
Today, I'm excited to have with me a man who I know is going to add a heap of value to your scale-up journey and is one of the most prolific deal makers in the world today. So to set the scene, about 18 months or so ago, I was looking to improve my knowledge around buying and selling businesses. Not so much the traditional private equity approach, which is my background, but more so the cut and thrust of deal making around smaller businesses that I could effectively acquire for a good price, sometimes for even no money down. And that led me to find a community of deal makers called the Harbour Club. So I subsequently attended one of their masterclasses in London, learned a hell of a lot. In fact, some of the techniques from that, have, from that experience have helped me to build my own portfolio of businesses. And I know many of you are interested in doing the same. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the show the owner and the founder of the Harbour Club and the Unity Group, Mr. Jeremy Harbour. So welcome. Welcome Thanks. to the show. Right, I've got nothing left to say now. That was awesome. <laughs> I was going to say, my intros tend to be a little bit like that. It covers pretty much everything. Um, I am going to just share with the audience, if you don't mind, a little bit of your background and then obviously anything that I miss, which I probably won't miss much, um, you can jump in and, uh, and fill in the blanks. So I've got you as a leading expert in the field of uh, mergers and acquisitions across Europe, the USA and Asia, based out of Singapore. Um, investments Correct. in 12 countries, bought and sold over 50 companies and advised on 200 more. I'm sure that number is probably changing by the day. Yeah, it's probably over 100 on the, on the personal transactions now. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, avid keynote speaker, published author. Um, in fact, I read your first book, I believe, um, it was published in 2012, which was Go Do, uh, which is obviously a focus on helping people who have always wanted to start a business. And you've just published another book recently? Uh, yeah, well, it's not actually published yet. It comes out in uh, December 2020, um, and it's called Go Do Deals, and it's the kind of sequel to Go Do, um, but really focused around that next rung on the entrepreneurial ladder. So um, moving from, you know, what I describe as customer value, so staff and customers. Yep. Um, and business would be great fun if it didn't have staff and customers. <laughs> <laughs> To, uh, yes, indeed. Moving through to, uh, to doing deals, basically, to uh, shareholder value. So away from customer value, more towards shareholder value. So joint ventures, mergers, acquisitions, exits. Fantastic. Okay, well, good. Well, let's get into some of that today. I mean, I know from my experience of the Harbour Club, which, you know, you can definitely talk about as well, that's, you know, training for entrepreneurs with what I, you know, what you would call real world tactics for buying, fixing and selling businesses. And I certainly got a lot out of that experience myself. Um, but let's kick off. Yeah, have I missed anything? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, um, I'm uh, I'm uh, 46 years old now, so <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. Now, well, listen, I'm 45, so I know the I know the feeling. What? Let's let's kick off then. So, you're. Um, what do you think you have a, a speciality? If you were kind of looking back over your career and what you do now. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, look, where, where people end up is a really convoluted, accidental kind of uh, thing. If you ask your 12-year-old self what your 46-year-old self would be doing, it's, it's nothing, like, uh, nothing like this. But you're the, you're the sum of your experiences and the different uh, roads to the left and the right that you took at different, uh, at different times. But um, I happen to have found myself at a position where I have uh, an unhealthy amount of experience in buying and selling owner-managed uh, small to medium-sized businesses at a point in time where 60% of owner-managed businesses are owned by baby boomers who are about to retire. Um, so uh, it just so happens like the last two decades where it really is a, a buyer's market and, a, and there's a huge opportunity um, and it's a, it's a global opportunity. I mean, in every mature economy, 
half the half the GDP, half the economy comes from small to medium-sized businesses, and a huge percentage of those are owned by people who won't be around in the next couple of decades with the best will in the world. You know, so yes. um, yeah, it, it's kind of a like I say, the, it's it's been an accidental path, but it's been you know it, it, it's certainly uh, fortuitous right now. Interesting. Yeah, and I was at an event last week, and we were talking about this particular dynamic um, in the US alone. And the figure that was sort of thrown around the room, if you like, was 10,000 people per day retiring in the US. Uh, yeah, mainly ba- like, baby yeah, boomers just, and, you know, baby boomers yeah, hitting. Just, just the US, yeah. And that's crazy. Yeah. And you kind of think what percentage of those have got a business, you know? Yeah, well, it's, it, it, yeah, it's enormous. Yeah, it's, it's enormous. Yeah, we were talking yeah. about the specifics of, um, you know, is it better to start a business now or is it better to buy a business? And, and probably for what you said beforehand, the dynamic suggests that it's potentially worth looking at the acquisition route first in many cases. Yeah, look, I would say, look, I, I always say to people, startup is a rite of passage. I think you have to do a startup to be able to fully empathize with the kind of entrepreneurial experience because um, the day I knew the most about business was the day I started my first business. You know, you really, when you look at it from the outside with logic, this is going to be so easy. It's going to be, you know, uh, I just do some advertising. I get some sales. I do some more, you know, I do some more advertising. I get some more sales. What, what could go wrong? Um, and then you actually start a business. And after you've been beaten around the head for, you know, for, for a few years and you realize what, you know, employing people entails, what dealing with disciplinary situations entails, what, but, uh, you know, how marketing is just a constantly moving piece. It's never, you know, the, the inexperienced entrepreneur is like, oh, well, I'll get this business, I'll put a manager in, and I'll just take the dividends and I'll go and sit on a beach. You know, they're absolutely fucking deluded. Um, and, um, <laughs> yes. But unless you've done it, you you can't appreciate that logic doesn't work in businesses. So. So I think startup is a rite of passage. People have to kind of go through that. But once you've done it, why on earth would you do it again? Um, you know, that, that blood, that sweat, those years that you put into doing a startup, you never really get that back. The, the experience is, is invaluable, but you, you have to be some kind of fucking masochist to do well, that I was going to say, lots, I mean, lots of people uh, are masochists. That was the word that was popping to my head as you were talking. Yeah, I meet people and they go, oh, I'm, a serial, I'm a serial startup entrepreneur. And I'm like, fucking hell, are you mad? What's wrong with you? Why would you, why would you continue to do that? It's like... Uh, it's like beating your head against a wall. It's fantastic when you stop. I, I, have, a, um, I have a theory about this. I have a theory, whether it's, whether it's right or wrong, it's my view on it, is that entrepreneurship in that sort of startup thing has become quite romantic and it's almost become, you know, a thing that people like to say they do these days. You know, if you look at... Um, well, I guess it, maybe it gets you laid in bars. Uh, um, particularly, you know, particularly in, you know, West Coast America. <laughs> <laughs> or something yeah. like that. I mean, it, it's but it but it's. Uh, I mean, the the streets are littered with the dead bodies of startups. You know, I mean, it, it's actually quite a toxic space, and it's and like you say, it's a bit glamorized, and uh, and you know, hey, look at it from like a Facebook or Google perspective. Would you invest billions and billions of dollars in R and D, or would you try and romanticize startups? Let a thousand hungry entrepreneurs run flat out at a wall, and then just pick up the one that didn't die. <laughs> Um, you know, from a corporate standpoint, from a corporate 
standpoint, startups are awesome, aren't they? It saves you, saves you all that R&D, that bleeding edge of technology, that bleeding edge is covered. You just get the cutting edge stuff. That's no, great. listen, I, I, what I say on this show, just to kind of put a bit of context, you've got a mix of people who listen. So you've got some people who are well, right. I just alienated half of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know what I think you've done? I think you've made quite a few think. And actually, you know what the purpose of this for me today, you know, and, I, and this is why I wanted to get you on the show, is A, I got heaps out of the Harbour Club, right? Learned a lot and have put some of that into my own my own deal making everything like that but i actually want people to have a bit of a different um shift if you like in their thinking around this because on the on the show at the moment we have people who are going through startup i get probably three or four people a day contact me saying can you help me with a startup idea okay that's one thing the main process is scale up you know when people are in the wilderness and they're, they're sort of cash poor time poor and they don't know what the hell to do and the thinking mm -hmm. behind that is just to again provide the context is that People who start businesses are not necessarily the best at scaling them. Now, that doesn't mean they can't be, but the skill set and the mindset are different. Yeah. Correct. So what I'm trying to get across is, do you know what? If you've got a business, let's say you have done the startup, <clears throat> excuse me, your rite of passage, love that point. Why, why not look to bolt a few other things together? Why not start to look at doing some deals, you know, basically do some roll-ups and then you can create more scale potentially more quickly? Yeah, so this is this was my epiphany. So I think, like, like you say, the mindset of an entrepreneur, basically um, entrepreneurs are great at starting things because they don't see the obstacles that other people see. They see everything as being really easy. So they get started, but then like you say, very quickly, they get to their kind of critical mass. They get to the, the, the maximum of their ability in, in quite a short space of time. And, uh, and also they tend to be quite unwilling to hand over to other people. They like to micromanage and get involved in everything in the business. Now, if they could focus on, if they could then pivot to focusing on doing deals, so if they can pivot away from customer value to shareholder value, that would allow the management within the business to get on and just manage the business because they wouldn't have the entrepreneur interfering every day. When you keep changing stuff all the time, you know, you, you tend to uh, stop the business from being able to succeed. So my big epiphany, I had a telecoms company uh, back in 1997 and telecoms is just naturally acquisitive. So I sat across the other side of the desk from dozens of companies that were trying to buy me. And that was probably my first education in pitching a deal with no money down because effectively that's what they were all trying to do. They were all trying to buy my business and the one thing they had in common is they weren't going to give me any money. And so my, my, <laughs> my, my brain shift on that was to say, wait a minute, I haven't got any money either. Maybe I should be the buyer instead of the seller. Um, and, and switched around to me being on the other side of the table. Now, long story short, when I actually bought one of my competitors and I bought a little mobile phone shop down the road, 13 year old business with a thousand customers or a thousand active phone lines. Um, I bought it with no money down. Um, I didn't take any debt from the bank. Um, they would never lend it to me. Um, and uh, basically grew by a year's worth of sales in an afternoon. Wow. And I remember the thought process at the time was, hey, look, it's like running the last 10 yards of a marathon, but they still give you a medal. Um, why, why wouldn't I just do this again and again and again? And, and it, what it made me realize is that, you know, all of the books and all of the things out there are so focused on the organic growth strategy. It's the start a business, work really hard, try this marketing thing, try this Facebook ad thing, try this new hack on Google AdWords. They're so obsessed with growing your business organically that they forget you could just double it tomorrow with a decent acquisition and you could do it in a very, very low risk way. You know, when you do advertising, um, you can spend a fortune on ads um, before you get any traction. But if you buy a company and it's de-risked, so you haven't paid cash up front, um, you don't leave a lot of room for, for downside. 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of, you know, when I speak to people about this, as I mentioned, the, the week I was at last week was with a number of entrepreneurs who I was talking about this stuff at the event, <clears throat> my experience of it. And um, a lot of people came up to me afterwards and said, listen, we've got no idea how to do this. You know, or, or it hasn't even been something they've thought of. They're not programmed at this point in time to be able to think, actually, I could go and do it. I think people think, firstly, A, this is hard. It's hard because I need to spend money and I haven't got the cash. So how, how do you just take us through that? Because, you know, yeah, look, so I, I would come back to just a, a little bit earlier in that sentence. So the first thing is um, everything's hard until you do it the first time. Fuck me. Figuring out Facebook ads is hard. Everything you do for the first time, of course, it's going to be uh, uh, it's going to be hard. But the juice is worth the squeeze. I mean, this is a way of creating six and seven figure, sometimes eight figure increases in your personal wealth when you get this uh, right. You know, you don't make money running businesses, you make money when you sell them, you make money from doing deals. And so um, getting this right is a really important part of the entrepreneurial uh, repertoire. And rather than waiting until you're 60 or 70 and having one shot trying to sell uh, the business that you've run your entire life, which is the kind of the retirement model kind of uh, uh, method, why not get that experience of selling businesses several times over, get these capital events all the way through uh, your career. So, um, uh, so I think people have to look at it in that way. That of course it's of course it's hard. You've got to learn it. You've got to you've got to figure it out. Um, but the information is out there now. One of the biggest challenges is that when people embark on learning this stuff, the first thing they tend to do is hit the internet, um, buying businesses for sale, buying business whatever. Um, most of the websites are done by brokers, um, mm -hmm. so they're yeah. content rich, they're designed to harvest leads for brokers, and of course brokers want you to borrow loads of money from a bank and, and give it to them because that's where they get their commissions from. So there's a lot of information out there on leverage buyout, borrowing money to buy businesses. Now, with, now this is great in big business and it's worked for decades in, in large companies. And so people just translate that down to small to medium-sized businesses. The problem with small to medium-sized businesses is they tend to be quite owner-centric. They tend to have somebody running it who's doing the job of three people for the salary of half a person. Um, and when you do a leverage buyout, you're effectively taking your forward cash flow, you're taking all the profit this thing's going to make in the future, and you're giving all that money to uh, your star employee so they can leave, um, so you no longer have your star employee, um, and now you're personally guaranteeing this big pile of debt, and, and you have a new job, which is doing what that guy did. Um, and, uh, and that can be a really toxic situation to find yourself in. So you, so you have to learn how to do this in a smarter way. Um, and it really is a buyer's market. Um, if you listen to what the person is saying, um, they'll just say, I want money. But actually, if you drill down into what their real needs and their real motivations are, there are often other ways of solving problems for them. And the, the difference between dealing with owner-managed businesses and dealing with yeah, you know, the traditional... It. So what's your thoughts then on, okay, so the difference between, and sometimes it can be the same, of the distressed business versus the distressed owner? Um, so uh, yeah, sometimes they can be the same, but yeah, you're, you're right. There's two different, uh, uh, there's two different aspects. So the distressed business is very simply, they've lost sight of the basic business principle that you should have more money coming in than going out. Um, so and, cash flow, uh, etc. Yeah, and, and typically they're trying to solve that in the wrong way. So, you know, quite often they'll be out looking for investment for a business basically losing money. So they're trying to fix the leaking bucket with more water. Um, okay. and, and that <laughs> yes. Um, and then the distressed owner is, it can be a whole bunch of things. It can be family problems. It could be health. It could be, you know, um, literally just they're, they're bored with the whole 
uh, thing. I've, I've had distressed owners where actually they've made loads of money in their career. Um, they've got the family, you know, they've got the, uh, the holiday home, they've got a boat, um, and business just got hard. Um, you know, the landscape's changed. They didn't really change with the landscape. Um, they don't really want to make all these people that, you know, they've got 20 staff that they'd have to make redundant. They don't really want to do that because, um, you know, they've got the night, they feel guilty about the fact they have this wonderful lifestyle. So, um, you know, quite often that, that can be a, a level of distress that you can, uh, also potentially, uh, maximize because you can solve the problem of, of them, you know, getting out, uh, and, and you get to, uh, you get to take over. And with, with that baby boomer generation, you know, the motivation is often legacy and a safe pair of hands. They've, they've spent their entire career hating the fucking guy down the road, you know, hating this competitor um, that they, they put up. Selling to them is just not an option. Um, and they know that if they sell to one of these big competitors, their, their brand disappears, the company disappears, the staff disappear, the customers just get hoovered up into this giant corporate animal. Um, and so you'll see people that have got three million cash on the table for the, for the thing just to be hoovered up like this and zero cash on day one from you but you'll keep the building, you'll keep the brand, you'll keep yes, Jeff yes, in account. Yes. Um, and actually, that's more <laughs> motivating to them than three million of, of cash. You've also got, I suppose, in the situation, back to that, you know, we're saying beforehand, how many of those, just that example in the US, the 10,000 baby boomers retiring, my understanding is there's only three ways to sell a business anyway. You can sell it to another person, you can sell it to another business, or you can sell it to private equity. They tend to be the three main shapes. If you can't sell it, because, you know, the, the sort of, as you said, the supply demand favors the buyer. I mean, there's a massive cost to closing it down anyway, isn't there? Well, so actually, I mean, you say that, but I mean, that's quite a common uh, route for people now, because I mean, if you look at uh, if you look in the US, the multiples have got so ridiculous. I think in 2016, uh, you know, for like a small engineering company, for example, the multiple would be about 1.6 times earnings. Um, and you might not get all of that up front, you know, so it's 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 pretty ridiculous. So what people tend to do is they tend to wind the business down over a period of time, take as much cash as they can out of it. And then at the end of that period, close the doors because you're going to get a lot more than 1.6 times your earnings. So you just don't replace staff. Everybody, you know, um, you don't update stuff. You don't do any R&D. Um, you know, you literally just just wind the thing down into the ground and then at, at the end of it, close the doors. And, and that's happening more and more often because people don't have an exit route. You know, they don't have a solution. So those companies are, again, they're looking for a, pay, a safe pair of hands. If you're there um, to take it off them, um, they'd be more than happy just to hand it over and let you uh, let you run with it. So what would you say? I mean, a difficult question to answer, but what is the perfect deal that you advise people to look for in this day and There's age? There's no such thing deal really so I mean on the Harbour Club as I mean as you know we have those 12 different deal structures and um, you know we have everything from kind of very uh, very path of least resistant kind of way of worming yourself into an equity position in the uh, in the business um, right the way up to doing you know uh, deals for tens of millions of, uh, of dollars the the common theme is not exposing your own capital and not borrowing money from uh, from banks um, and so the perfect deal is really um, the deal that you can get done um, that, that suits you. So for example, and again, people come on the Harbour Club for many different reasons. So we have business owners that are looking to scale their own business and just want to add that M&A, you know, that acquisition engine to their, uh, to their plan. We have people that have a business already and just want to exit um, and want to figure out the best way of exiting. We have people who want to kind of emulate what I do and just, you know, buy and sell or my old career, if you like, which is buying and selling businesses. Um, you have people that want to emulate my new Korea, taking companies public and doing big roll-ups and putting groups um, together. 
Um, so we really have a mixed bag. I mean, you probably got this from networking with people, a real mixed bag of the reasons behind people uh, uh, coming. And, and I think we have the, the deal structures that suit all of those kind of different situations. Yeah, indeed. And do you ever, is there ever a time that you entertain putting your own cash in to one of these deals? I mean, if you, is there a point where you, or are you so disciplined that you go, you know what, um, the model I've always done is this type of thing? There are so many fish in the sea that don't require cash. Uh, so over my career, yeah, I've done it lots of times and uh, I've almost universally regretted it. And I think, um, I think uh, people believe that if they pay a bit of money up front, they get a better business. And that's just not true. Um, you can buy a shit business and pay money up front, or you can buy a great business and pay money up front, or you can buy a great business and not pay money up front, or you can buy a shit business and not pay any money up front. There is, there is no, you know, uh, um, yeah, there's no rule around it. And, and I guess one of the challenges we often have with the Harvard Club is that people have a paradigm that you've got to give some money up front. To a, a business transaction is probably a real estate transaction because most people have bought their own house or they've done a bit of property investing. And with that, you put down some cash, you borrow some money, and there's your deal. So most people have that as a default deal structure that they kind of understand in their head. They can get their head around that. So that's a very easy sell to people to say, just go do that. Um, uh, but when you challenge people and say, look, here's a deal structure that requires no cash up front and requires no debt, they go, that's fucking brilliant. I love that idea. <laughs> and then they go out and they meet a few people. The people that they meet say, I want half a million cash up front. And they go, oh, okay, this isn't one of those. This is one of the ones where they need half a million of of cash so I can borrow some money and I can give some cash up front. They kind of need, they need to go back to basics and understand the deal structures again to be able to say, no, this isn't one of the, I get it all the time. I get Harbour Club is ringing me up going, hey, Jeremy, I found a deal. It's not really a Harbour Club deal. It just needs a bit of cash. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the emotional side of this is, let me just talk about it because I think, because I'm going to ask you a question about deal this structure. All about this. Yeah, about deal sourcing. Hold on, we're just going to... This way. So, you know, because you've got this thing where, because I've been, I've done this, right? So I've gone out there and I've looked at 20 different businesses, you know, nailed it down to a criteria that I think I can do something with a business. And then I fall in love with one, right? Which is, yeah. which I don't want to do, <laughs> yeah. but there's something about the business I like. It's this, that, and the other. And it doesn't quite yeah. fit, say, certainly the model that you would recommend. I mean, what's, mm. what's your view on sourcing? Is, is it just to have a massive pipeline all the time and be very, again, yeah. disciplined about what yeah, you... Um, yeah, look, they have surprisingly few options. So um, uh, basically, you put your deal on the table. Um, it has to be a win-win. It has to work for them as, as well as it, as it works for you. Um, and then you have to be able to move on to the next one. And actually, getting busy looking at other deals is a great way of dealing with uh, the thing you're talking about, which I call deal heat, yes. um, which is this kind of horny dog trying to you know, uh, hump their leg the whole time and you just come across desperate. Um, the deal ends up getting worse and worse every time you communicate with them. Um, so actually just having the deal out there and then looking, uh, looking like you're not interested is, is like fucking catnip to, <laughs> to, entrepreneur, you know, to business spenders. Um, and, uh, and the best way to do that is to get really busy looking at other deals. And some of the best uh, deal makers that we have in the Harbour Club are actually like a little bit overwhelmed uh, with, with deals. Um, so, uh, yeah, you kind of need to get yourself into an overwhelmed situation in order to be able to do What's the best? What are the best techniques do you think for actually sourcing? Because obviously you mentioned before about brokers, and I imagine that brokers is probably not your number one choice to go to. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, bro brokers don't add any value to the, the uh, um, yeah, to the scenario. They overinflate the valuation of businesses. They, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're not helpful either to the business owner or to themselves quite often. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so the key is finding those kind of off-market uh, uh, transactions, the businesses that perhaps don't don't know they're for sale, um, that basically are looking to solve a problem, um, and the sale could be the solution to that problem. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, source. So the, the way that I would sort of the, the rough cut I would approach for sourcing is to say that uh, when you're dealing with owner-managed businesses, it's not really a procurement process, which is what most people think of when they think of buying a business. It's like a procurement process. It's lots of due diligence. It's lots of teeth sucking and negotiation and all that sort of stuff. It's actually more like a sales process. Yeah. It involves. Or you have to have a huge amount of rapport with the potential uh, target. You have to um, really go through it like a sales process from the identifying the needs to meeting the needs to overcoming the objections. It, it pretty much looks like a sales uh, uh, process. So if buying is selling, if buying a company is a sales process, then sourcing is marketing. Got it. Uh, so marketing is how do you get people to put their hand up to go sell them something. Um, so pretty much, you know, my first advice is normally whatever you do in your business currently to get customers um, will probably work for finding businesses. Um, so if you're very good at telemarketing, you're very good at face-to-face -face networking, or if you're very good at direct mail, all of those things could be applied to sourcing businesses. Now, obviously, on the Harbour Club, we go into some more specific kind of tactics, but as a, as a good way to look at the whole process, um, most people have a... Uh, a natural skill in one direction or another when it comes to marketing for new clients. Um, pivot that into looking for uh, businesses. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So in other words, prospecting. You know. You know. I think you mentioned on the Harbour Club sending letters, <laughs> sending handwritten letters has been a technique you've yeah, used well, in the past. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not not handwritten, but old-fashioned snail yes. mail. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I have lost count of how many deals have been done from that letter writing strategy. Wow. It's in the hundreds. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Can we just talk a little bit about, so once you, once you get a business um, and it's whatever state it is, what's the first thing you start to look at? I, I suppose it comes into the concept of fixing the business or starting to grow it again. Is there a playbook that yeah, you use? Or so, is it yeah. So it's interesting. Everybody's kind of obsessed with getting in and sorting out the culture and focusing on all this, uh, this kind of um, uh, big picture um, kind of stuff. I'm actually a lot more brutal than that. So obviously, I mean, it depends if you're getting involved in a, in a distressed or a mature uh, business to an extent, but really the approach is, is very similar. And the first thing is to um, get the focus back to cash. So most people focus on, on turnover or profit. Um, businesses don't go bust because of a lack of profit, they go bust for a lack of cash. So the first thing we do is pivot the whole business focus toward cash um, and make sure the business always has cash in the bank and it can meet its obligations. And that's actually pretty good behavior for a solvent business as well. Um, to uh, uh, to bring a focus back to cash. And we have some very specific techniques and tactics on financial engineering, um, which is really um, how to present the profit and loss in the balance sheet um, in a way that maximizes the um, profitability of the company and also um, what uh, structural changes you could make to the, the structure of the business. So instead of just having a limited company with everything in it and your customers is there a more optimized structure that could be used that again would maximize profits maximize balance sheet uh, value and there's a lot of really clever things you can do uh, most accountants are very vanilla uh, very boring um, they tend <laughs> to focus more on uh, uh, I know it's a cliche but it's cliches are cliches because they're often true um, the uh, uh, yeah the, the, it's getting that focus into um, uh, maximizing profit instead of mitigating tax basically um, and you know on the Harbour Club I talk about how you can use the same set of numbers to show um, all perfectly legal using 
you know, normal accounting standards. And, um, uh, and, and that's really a, a key thing for people to start to understand. You don't have to be an accounting genius to understand it. You just need to understand the principles so that you can instruct an accountant to, uh, uh, you know, to do this stuff for you. Got it. Got it. Okay. Interesting. All right. F- fantastic. And so what's, um, just a little bit more about what you're doing now, yourself personally, because I think a lot of people get the uh, get a lot from what I call the entrepreneurial journey <laughs> of yourself, Jeremy. So you said yeah. you're not doing any of the deals as the way you used to do them before. What, what are you focused on now? Yeah, so obviously I used to buy and sell companies. So I used to do distressed and uh, um, motivated sellers where I would buy the company for no money down, um, do a kind of 100-day um, uh, fixer up kind of plan and then sell it as quickly as possible thereafter and obviously that afforded me a fantastic lifestyle and uh, um, and, and absolutely no regrets that was a great uh, uh, path to go on um, but then basically whilst doing that I, I spotted a, a kind of trillion dollar uh, opportunity and, and without being kind of facetious I think yeah. it's also potentially uh, a, a solution to global inequality which I know sounds a bold claim but I'll try and I'll try and cover that um, the uh, basically, while I was looking at all these small businesses, I noticed that there is a tier of businesses that is incredibly underserved, and it's the companies that are generating between about one and five million of profits per year. Um, so EBIT, earnings before interest and tax. And in that one to five million space, you find some really fantastic businesses. They've created uh, an awesome culture with their staff and their customers, um, but surprisingly, they also have very, very few options. Um, they, uh, from a scale-up perspective, they can't borrow money from the banks without betting their house. Uh, VCs and private equity aren't really interested. You might, if you're in a really sexy space, find a PE firm that will take the ball off you, um, but they certainly won't invest in you to, to take it further. They want to buy the company, stick you know 20 uh, teenage MBAs in there and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, who know how to do it much better than you do and, um, uh, and saddle the thing up with tons and tons of debt. Um, so... Um, uh, so basically, yeah, there are surprisingly few options for these really great businesses. And, um, and actually, it's a huge segment. It's, there's a lot of companies that would fit that uh, profile. So, um, uh, so I figured it, it, it's, uh, it, it's potentially quite a big, uh, quite a big opportunity. So um, uh, I kind of looked at it and thought, why is that? Why do these, you know, I'm in Singapore. Um, within 100 meters of my house, there's about $150 billion of cash sitting in private equity firms waiting to go into deals. Why aren't they touching this huge um, sector of the market? And it basically boiled down to three key reasons. They're, they are still too risky uh, because of their scale. Um, uh, you know, if they lose a couple of key staff or a couple of key customers, it can be the, the end of them. Um, they, uh, they suffer from what I call the scale paradox. The scale paradox is that you have to be big to get big. Um, you can only get proper credit card processing facilities and you can only pitch for big contracts once, you, once you're already big. Um, so your size is, it creates a bit of a glass ceiling. Um, you'll find in a lot of industries, actually, the biggest player wins the contract and then subcontracts the kind of crumbs from the table to the small local business that can actually deliver. Um, but that keeps those small businesses small while all the cream is kept by the, by the big competitor. Um, and then the final one, so risk being the first, scale being the second, the final one is liquidity. Investing in small businesses as an, from an investor standpoint is a horribly illiquid activity. Um, so you stick your money in, you're stuck. Um, you know, uh, the best three to five year plan an entrepreneur gives you takes 10 to 15 years to deliver. Um, and then you have to hope they actually sell it or have some kind of capital event which will enable you to get your money out. So what's happened over the last uh, 40 years, they go into derivatives. 
Um, so derivatives are basically bets on stuff and um, they're very liquid. Um, they can put as much money in as they want. Um, they can take it out very quickly. Um, so the derivative market has swollen and swollen and swollen while small business gets, gets no look in. And in fact, if you look at um, a typical, well, if you look at the top 500 um, uh, asset managers globally, they have $92 trillion invested. Um, a huge percentage of that is in derivatives. And then they also invest in you know, equities, debt, uh, bonds and things like that, gold, silver, real estate, um, all these asset classes. So you look at that $92 trillion, it's in just about every asset class apart from small business. And small business is 50% of GDP in every mature economy in the world. So in America, Canada, the UK, mainland Europe, uh, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, half the economy is small business. And yet there is no asset allocation, zero asset allocation from all of the big capital in the world. All the money in the world is basically completely detached from all the real value in the world. These, these are the businesses that are actually employing people. In the UK, 98% of the private sector workforce works in companies less than 200 staff. So it's everybody. It's, it's such a huge part of the economy, and yet it's not getting any of the, uh, any of the money. So, um, uh, so basically, I, I figured out if you, could, if you could make small business an asset class, you would effectively unlock global capital and bring it into there because global capital wants to be diversified. It wants to be in every kind, in every asset known to man. And they even have, they even have a crypto allocation now, um, but they don't have a small business allocation. So, um, so we figured if we could solve the problems of risk, scale, and liquidity, we could unlock global capital, get it into small business. If you can do that, that's a meritocratic way of creating wealth. Um, because you start a business, you work hard, you grow it, you get rewarded, you become wealthy. A meritocratic link to wealth is what is missing in the whole global inequality story. Because right now, government's best idea, and it's every government's best idea, is take money from people who work and give it to people who don't. And that's the only thing that they keep coming up with for wealth uh, redistribution. The problem is tax is, um, tax is quite toxic to entrepreneurship because, look, we, we had the conversation about startups. You know, startups are really, really fucking hard. Well, if you, if you put a 70% tax rate in as well, well, you're kind of fucked if you, if you fail and then you're fucked if you succeed. So why would you do it? <laughs> it's, um, it becomes a zero-sum game. So then you, you stifle entrepreneurship. So um, I think that just rewarding entrepreneurs for success is a much better way of, of doing this. And, and also entrepreneurs then go on and solve much bigger problems. You know, entrepreneurs are change agents in society give them money, they can go solve bigger and, uh, and more serious problems. So, um, uh, so basically, we came up with a structure. So the, the traditional way private equity has approached this is the roll-up. Um, the problem is in that size that I spoke about, that one to five million profit uh, arena, um, uh, most of the value in that company is in the culture it's created with its staff and its customers. So you can't just stick a bunch of them together and expect to get uh, an increase in value. And you don't get the synergies that you get in really large companies. So most of the time people do roll ups because of all the synergies, you know, the back office uh, costs that you can cut out. Well, businesses of that size tend to be pretty lean. Um, so there's not an awful lot of juice in the, uh, in the synergies either. So what we decided was to play with the arbitrage that exists between small private companies and large public companies. And so we get a group of um, small to medium sized businesses to collectively acquire a fully reporting public company. Um, we solve risk because it's now a portfolio of small businesses. So they're diversified across countries and currencies and markets. Um, we solve scale because they now have a huge profit loss and balance sheet they can point to when they're, uh, uh, when they're out pitching for business. And we solve liquidity because it's a fully reporting public company. People can buy and sell the shares on a daily 
basis. So um, we call the structure agglomeration. It's a governance structure that enables these businesses to cooperate together and to share that public vehicle. Um, and, uh, and, and the goal is basically to um, yeah, consolidate groups of small to medium-sized businesses into those, uh, into those agglomerations and to yeah, massively increase their value. If you look at you know, a small private company, it probably trades at three times earnings. If you look at a large public company, it can be 25 to 30 times earnings. So there's a, a tenfold shareholder value uh, through, that, uh, through that process. Wow. So long answer. No, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, it's an excellent, it's an excellent answer. There's a, it's a lot in that. I mean, I was, um, yeah. I was uh, working with your business partner, Callum, uh, Callum Lane, because mm-hmm. he asked me to kind of take out some of that concept to my private equity network. And just to make a point, it was very interesting because what happened was I tried to explain with him how, exactly what you said about the, you know, there's, there's, there's so many small businesses out there. There's a lot of money sitting in private equity. There's a massive distortion in the market actually right now about how that's being invested. A couple of the firms I've worked with are struggling to deploy, to be frank, because the multiples of businesses that have got any sort of scale are, well, you said 25, but, you know, if a private equity firm, if they buy for eight now and sell for 12 on average, depends on the sector, that's a very good return for them. And that's what they're looking at. But when we took yeah. this concept out, just to kind of say, actually, is there some investment that could come in? You could see the psychology and the thinking was just not there. They couldn't see the, they couldn't see how it works because they were looking at it from a, a spreadsheet perspective and not necessarily yeah. looking at it from the opportunistic perspective, which was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, again, the first thing people always ask us is, so when do you get, when do you get the synergies? How do you, you know, are you going to consolidate the back office? You're going to centralize the sales yeah. fund and all this sort of stuff. Whenever I've seen roll-ups fail, it's because they've tried to centralize uh, functions. You know, fucking with Deirdre the bookkeeper. Um, you, <laughs> yes. focus away from, you know, you take the focus away from going out and winning new business to yeah. we've got to save Deirdre. Um, and it's, it's, it's just really pointless. Having said that, if they decide that Deirdre needs to go to improve their profit, it's the best idea ever. Yeah. Um, no, I, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, the, the number of times, I mean, I've, I've done this and you tend to get a lot of people who've got, you know, world-class MBAs sitting around the table. You finding them. Yes, indeed. So listen, yeah. um, I'm conscious of yeah. your time, Jeremy, because, you know, you've been very, very um, gracious with it. Just a couple of, if we can, some quick fire questions, if that's cool. Um, yep. So firstly, what's the best piece of advice you've received ever? Oh my God. Um, I don't know. Uh, somebody said to me once, "The best deals you do are the ones. Some of the best deals you do are the ones you walk away from." Yes. Um, and uh, and certainly some of the worst deals I've I've done are the ones I didn't walk away from. So that's, <laughs> uh, probably, that's probably good advice. So okay, got it. So walk away from. I suppose the, the, the summary is don't get emotionally attached, like <laughs> like I was saying previously. A uh, um, thing, but um, Warren Buffett says, um, you know, price is his due diligence, and I think that's quite a powerful. Uh, statement. Got it. And have you, um, I take it through your career, um, have you had any good mentors, people who've helped you? Um, actually, no. I mean, it's, it's funny, different people come and go in your, in your career and it does seem to be the right person arrives at the right time um, without getting all woo-woo about the whole, <laughs> the whole thing. You're talking about serendipity there, Jeremy. <laughs> or some kind of happy accident. Um, yes. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, no, the um, uh, yeah, uh, all the way through everything you're doing, you always stumble across a person that can add some value at that uh, at that point of time, or, or gives you an, or gives you the seed of an idea that pivots into uh, uh, into something else. Um, but no, there's there's not somebody that would stand out. I, I, I didn't have a, you know, a a mentor or a coach or something like that through the 
through the process that I was going through. Yeah, good. It sounds um, like I wish I'd done that. 20 years ago, that would have been amazing. Well, yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna say there's there's a little bit of you know it comes through you know the networks of education and how you kind of you know have your own professional development. I think because I, what I personally did is I had a list of things that I wanted to upskill in, if you like, and then I searched for the best um, uh, people who could provide that, and that's how yep. I landed on your stuff. So la- last question, um, and I think you've I think you've covered this, but just be good to get the contextualization of it. So. What's one thing in the world that you feel is wrong today and what you'd like to change? I assume it's going to be what you said around this sort of yeah. democratization so look, of wealth. My, yeah, my, my view on this, there's a thousand things that I'd love to change about the world. I think there's so many things that are, that are wrong or could be fixed. But what I do know is that I can't fix all of those. Um, but what I do see is that when entrepreneurs are successful, they normally go and tackle the problems that have affected them most in life. So Larry Ellison has done fantastic things in the world of cancer. Uh, research. Bill Gates could actually cure malaria in his lifetime, something that, you know, organizations like Oxfam have been pissing around with for decades. Um, You know, uh, smart money, you know, entrepreneurs are really good at at, uh, solving problems and and they will use money in a smart way to solve those those problems. And so I actually think that by empowering more entrepreneurs, the problem we've got is that very few people break through and become fantastically wealthy from entrepreneurship. Um, and so if I can help solve that problem, so solving that inequality problem also has the side effect of financially empowering hundreds, if not thousands of entrepreneurs to then go on and solve the biggest problems that the world uh, faces. And I trust them to go and do that. And look, most of them, I think most of them will do altruistic and uh, wonderful things with that money. Um, and, uh, and the rest of them will just piss it up the wall on champagne and private jets and, and Cartier. Um, but both actually help society quite a lot, you know. So one of the challenges we have right now is that all the money is stuck, stuck in hot, sandy places, invested in derivatives and not getting into the real economy. Um, so, you know, you want to spend money like Elton John, not the Duke of Westminster, basically. So um, no, I get it. Uh, getting into the hands of people either way, I think, can be a healthy thing for the world. Yeah. So, yeah, my goal is to democratize wealth um, and... Uh, yeah, and to, and to turn the 1% into the 10%. Awesome. Love it. Love the vision. I mean, there's a heap of stuff we've covered today. I think even the, the detail, I get asked a lot about this topic. So I think we've mm-hmm. covered some of the real nuances of that today. And just a couple of things. So you're, you said beforehand your book, Go Do Deals, which I've got a copy here. See, pre-copy, yep. lucky me. Um, you said that's going to come out next year? Uh, yeah, it comes out December 2020, or you can get a copy when you come to the Harbour Club. Good. And see what I, did I did. And don't worry, I was going to ask you about that. Where can people reach you, Jeremy? Because I'll, I'll put a link um, so yeah, people can so, learn about the Harbour um, Club. They can follow me on Twitter, Jeremy, Jeremy J. Harbour. Um, Harbour is spelled in the English way, which is H-A-R-B-O-U-R. Um, so harbourclubevents.com. Um, uh, or if they're in the USA or Canada, they can go to harbourclubusa.com. Um, and, uh, and we, I mean, we give tons and tons of free content, as I'm sure you found out on your journey. Um, there's a, there's a fantastic ebook that you get for free, which actually gives you some really good tactics and things that you can get stuck into. We push loads of video content out there as well. So it's well worth getting into our, uh, you know, into our funnel, even if it's something perhaps you're not intending to take further, but just to get the, the, the free education, if you like, um, yeah. Good. Well, as an alumni, if you like, of the Harbour Club and certainly active in the network, I can recommend it to everybody as well. So what I'll do is I'll put some links in the show notes around that as well, because I think it's an important thing for people to start to think about, particularly in their scale-up journey, certainly one of the um, tactics and techniques that I recommend. So great. Listen, Jeremy, thank you very much again for your time. Uh, Very grateful for coming on the show. Heaps and heaps of value. And I always finish the show by saying, be grateful, be brave, have faith and show up. 
So thank you very much. Thank you very much.